My name is Justin McClure, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today, we're going to take a little tour of the disturbed mind, because we're talking about the filmography of Charlie Kaufman. And that's right, we're going to start at the end. Uh, do we give these movies thumbs up or thumbs down? That's traditionally how we end the podcast, right? Well, and and now we're in the middle. Oh, no, you're not supposed to start with the middle unless you want to create a suspenseful thing that we're going to get back to later and recontextualize. You know, Justin, uh, I really loved Charlie Kaufman when I was a teenager. I saw Adaptation when I was 14, I think. Totally blew my mind. Uh, loved him. Wanted to be him. Wanted to think like this man. I haven't spent a lot of time with Charlie Kaufman in the last 10 years, and if there's ever anything that I really liked as a teen, I'm inclined to be skeptical. I still think he's good, it turns well, out. Well, I wrote a little paragraph here of my thoughts on Charlie Kaufman, and I will read them verbatim. All of his work is a reflection of the frustrations we have when we become aware of life and the powerlessness of humans and the futility of living, which is a feeling that may last forever, but is particularly powerful when you become a teenager, which is why teenage always latch on to Charlie Kaufman's work because we were teenagers when we saw it and for the first time we were seeing a filmmaker that was going hey you know life is weird it's also miserable and you have no control over it and you know what's amazing watching these movies again this week I feel even more so that way now I'm older I'm a I'm a senior citizen of 31 years old and uh, these these issues seem all the more pressing to me now. You know, I think a good way to approach this is to talk about what people hate about Charlie Kaufman and deconstruct why we may like it. For example, very full of himself. Pretentious even. A narcissistic navel-gazing. And all the movies are all about that, which doesn't it make it worse that he acknowledges that he's narcissistic and then presents it to the viewer? A guy who just can't get out of his own head. Uh, a screenwriter who's constantly relying on show-offy gimmicks. I mean, I remember when I saw Being John Malkovich, and like every teenager that saw it went, what is this? This is the greatest movie ever! And it's so difficult to try to, like, explain to anyone who is younger than us, like, oh yeah, everybody liked this movie. And they're like, what? They did? It's true. Well, I watched it again this week, and I liked it better than ever. Um, I, I don't know if you feel that way, Justin, but I think he's really good. He's the one screenwriter that I think a lot of people can name because, you know, not just because he wrote himself as a character into one of his movies, although that's a big part of it, but also because, like any auteur, he has a set of recurring themes and motifs. Uh, he has He's written two movies, at least, where... Uh, two characters are running through a character's subconscious and they pass awkward, uh, buried memories. I think that Charlie Kaufman is also defined by the pathetic loser men that are in his movies. Not just himself, like an adaptation, but watching Being John Malkovich this time really made me remember, oh yeah, John Cusack is the full-out villain of this movie. <laughs> Which is great because you associate John Cusack with the charming, say-anything leading man, but this film goes out of its way to portray this, like, struggling puppeteer artist as just the biggest loser. And just in case you don't get it, look at his hair. It's terrible. Revisiting these movies, I think I was worried that they were gonna seem too gimmicky. Something that I appreciated this time around is I think these movies are both very truthful and very funny and very uncompromising about the sadness of life. People sometimes say that he's a downer, but 
I mean, most movies that you see, most commercial movies are essentially upbeat and happy. I read a line from the critic A.S. Hamra a couple weeks ago talking about Taste of Cherry. He said that it uses cinema to figure out if life is worth living, a hard question that seems superficial because so many films easily reach the conclusion that it is. And I thought about that watching these Charlie Kaufman movies, which are so much about how time doesn't necessarily make things better, how, how you don't necessarily become a better person as you get older and regrets accumulate. The structures of cinema as a narrative form are perceived to be successful by the viewer in its most conventional uh, aspect when it's a character succeeds and reaches over a problem that they had to move on with their lives and have things be better. That is almost never the case in a Charlie Kaufman movie. Things are only miserable by the end. Maybe the film has revealed something, but it could be, for example, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. It's just that these people, because of the mechanism that they're using to deal with their pain, are caught in an endless Mobius strip. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind, I think, you know, if, if Charlie Kaufman has genius, the end of that movie hits on it, which is it is a piercingly accurate depiction of the dissolution of a relationship. But it suggests that even failed relationships are worth having because that's all we have, you know? And by removing that, like, who are you? You're just going to go through the same steps you went before because you need those building blocks to keep going in some form, whether it be a worse one than what had come before. And in his movies... He's constantly obsessed with the idea of human connection, how precious it is, how rare it is, and how fickle it is when you get it. I think that one thing that, from a distance, after you haven't seen his films in a long time, that you forget, is that he's, like, really funny. Like, he started writing for sitcoms and sketch comedy shows like the Dana Carvey show. And he wrote on Chris Elliott's Get a Life, that like super weird uh, satirical sitcom, which is great. And that kind of DNA is transferred into his movies that even being John Malkovich, you know, when you think about it, you usually think about the finale and the tragic nature of what happens to the John Cusack character. When in reality, there are so many essentially Simpsons gags like on the way to get there like at one point they're watching a um, video about why the floor is it's the seven and a half floor of this office building and why the ceilings are so short and like there's a recreation of like the guy who owns the floor talking to a little person and he's like ah I will create a place where uh, your accursed kind can find joy that is a Simpson line if there ever was you know one. sometimes when we do this podcast I, I wonder how formal we need to be and I wonder if like I, I start thinking about podcast theory and I wonder do people want to like, just for the sake of structure, hear what the plot of the movie is. Uh, so Being John Malkovich is about uh, people who find a portal into the head of John Malkovich, uh, which everybody knows. Couldn't it just be called Being Tom Cruise, as Robert Shea, the executive of New Line, said after he turned the project down? It is really funny. Like, John Malkovich is the exact perfect choice for this oh. movie. Such the perfect choice. I mean, there's so many scenes in the movie where somebody's like, you know, John Malkovich, he was in that movie. And, and I realized watching it, it's like, what is, what is his raging bull? What is the movie that you associate John Malkovich with? Well, there's a scene where the guy's like, oh, I love that movie where you went full R. That was great. <laughs> yes. And I thought about it. It's like, oh, it's Of Mice and Men. That's the movie he's yes. talking about. But yeah, it is a really funny movie. And, you know, I watched uh, 20 Minutes of Human Nature today and I decided I decided not to finish it. Uh, 
um, because it was just mm-hmm. as bad as Oof. I remembered. But like his screenplays, I guess, do uh, call for a very particular kind of tone. Like being John Malkovich, the whole thing is treated so deadpan and even literally. It's funny how it depicts the most surreal ideas like the seven and a half floor or John Malkovich's puppetry career that dominates the last act of the movie. It depicts these things as just totally normal, as if they're unfolding in the real world. When they go into John Malkovich's brain and when there's a chase scene through Malkovich's brain, it depicts the brain as this almost literal space, as if it has a geography that you can travel through and these memories are unfolding as if they're scenes in a movie. I mean, that's very fun. Well, Spike Jones is the perfect director for Charlie Kaufman because he has a way of making the most surreal situation just feel normal. Just the way that he shoots it, just the way that he like tunes the performances of all his cast members. Like as weird as this is, it doesn't feel out of the ordinary or slap you in the face. Like I watched Confessions of a Dangerous Mind, George Clooney's film that Charlie Kaufman adapted the uh, Chuck Barris book from. And that's a movie that just doesn't work. Like Clooney cannot get on the same wavelengths of Charlie Kaufman's script. He tries to paper it over with like crazy visual stuff, but it's just so like leaden and it just sits there. That's a movie that just doesn't work for For me. For people who don't know this movie, and it's possible they don't, this was based on the autobiography of the host of The Gong Show, which was a a short-lived, rather trashy TV show, like game show type thing in in the 1970s. And Chuck Barris, I guess, in a cry for attention, wrote this autobiography where he claimed that the whole time he was an assassin for the CIA. And I know that uh, George Clooney and everybody else has given interviews where they say, oh, this this Charlie Kaufman script, like this was one of the best scripts ever. Uh, This script was getting passed around time. You wouldn't believe it. But apparently Clooney made some very drastic alterations to the script. Kaufman has all but disowned it. And I think there's a quote from Clooney where he says something like, look, there was some far out stuff in there that you just couldn't get in a studio movie at that time. You could have done it, George. You could have done it. (laughs) Well, I mean, you look at the other Charlie Kaufman movies and it's like, why turn it into a Milos Forman movie if you have a Charlie Kaufman script? Charlie Kaufman's entire career is one that I think is defined by failure. If you look at like articles about him, it's like he has these seven things that are about to come out and the studio is always like, I don't know, this is a little bit crazy and I don't want to touch it. Like, even after he made um, Synecdoche, New York, which, you know, didn't do very well financially, but was pretty well critically received, he could not get anything off the ground after that. I mean, I think Synecdoche, New York, like, lost $20 million. There, There was a period, there was a period there in the early 2000s when I guess Kaufman was kind of hot. And Adaptation from 2002 would have been a, a pretty high profile project for him to get because... As anyone who has seen it knows, this was Kaufman adapting the runaway bestseller by Susan Orlean, The Orchid Thief, and he turned it into a screenplay about his own struggles to adapt the screenplay. Do you like this one? Oh, yeah, I think it's great. Featuring the last good Nicolas Cage performance. Oh, that's not true. He's done good <laughs> stuff since then. But but uh, it's it's a kind of Nicolas Cage performance that you don't see that much anymore. Mm-hmm. It's one that I think is focused and is not showy in an attempt to break acting and bring it to another level and works within the context of the story that's being told. Can I tell you the, I guess, demural or the uh, question I had about this movie when I watched it this week? 
Uh, this this has been haunting me a little bit. So I, I like this movie very much, but the plot of it is all about how, you know, Charlie Kaufman, he can't adapt The Orchid Thief because it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to a screenplay. It doesn't have a, a clean three-act structure. Early in the movie, he says something like, why can't a movie just be about flowers? Charlie Kaufman writes a fictional twin brother character for himself, Donald Kaufman, who is kind of depicted as his his alternate self he's a hack hollywood screenwriter and he's very happy and he's very successful and he he's written a very hacky stupid script that's getting a lot of buzz you know famously adaptation is credited to both charlie and donald kaufman because the last third of the movie is donald's work this adaptation of the orchid thief actually becomes a shitty hollywood action movie where you know there are uh, chases and somebody gets eaten by a crocodile and everything and it's very clever it's very brilliant it doesn't it seem a little bit defeatist to you like isn't isn't Kaufman saying that like you actually you can't adapt the orchid thief well the argument is within the Hollywood system that's where he's working right because you can have experimental cinema that is moving and is different you're not going to open that like wide on a million screens because let's be honest people want blockbuster entertainment or they want uh slick oscar stuff like there's a part in adaptation where he's talking to the studio executive played by tilda swinton and she says something like um well we were thinking that maybe la roche and susan orlean could fall in love corny stuff like that i watched the movie and i felt myself just a little bit like well I would actually like to see an adaptation of The Orchid Thief that's good, you know? But then he turns around and he makes Synecdoche, New York, and it fails miserably. And it's like, oh, yeah, see, look, he's right. You can't do this. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's talk about Synecdoche, New York, which is his real big swing for the fences. This, I think, he made when he was like, it was after Eternal Sunshine. He's maximum uh, peak hot, you know, and he He can do whatever he wants. (laughs) And I mean, isn't that what the movie's about? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Like all of his movies, there is a Charlie Kaufman surrogate character who's a uh, brilliant, although we don't see a lot of evidence of his brilliance, but but we are to infer a brilliant theater director played by Philip Seymour Hoffman, whose latest production is an adaptation of Death of a Salesman, where the leads are played by young people. Um, so that seems like a bad idea. But Isn't the argument, though, is that like none of his characters are really brilliant? <laughs> Yeah. They are often told by other people that they're brilliant, but we never see that brilliance. We only see their self-loathing, which is much more uh, fun because any movie where a character goes, and that's the end of my story and my book gets published, you're like, what? That's not good. <laughs> so that's the only way to go about but it. But Philip Seymour Hoffman gets a MacArthur Genius Grant. He can basically write his own ticket, create anything he wants. And so he wants to create a play that actually deals with life, actually summarizes life and shows it as it is. And over the course of the movie, uh, which is very strange and surreal, it becomes this massive, it, it takes place essentially in a warehouse that becomes an entire city unto itself. A playtime, if you will, full of apartment buildings with actors playing versions of themselves and versions of other people. He hires somebody to play a version of himself and then hires somebody to play a version of that actor uh, constantly striving and failing to create the world or replicate the world while his own actual world is withering and decaying all around him. I mean, you want to take a step back and go, but your world is boring and you're miserable. Why would you want to recreate that and and force it onto people, even with all the context surrounding it? That's a good question. Um, Although I actually do think it is, it is maybe, uh, it is maybe an honorable pursuit just because like I found, I found some of these movies this week 
including the new one that he just had. I'm thinking of anything. I found some of these movies kind of therapeutic, like just in how bleak they are. I sort of like these movies that they attempt to tell it like it is. So were they therapeutic in the sense that you looked at them and you went, whew, I'm not that bad off. <laughs> well, first of all, I'm, I'm not that bad off. But but I'll tell you, like, uh, I'm an old man now, and I've seen the aging process all around me. I've seen people that I've known since I was the age of zero, age 31 years, and they don't get better. And like, aging is not, I mean, maybe it's good in some ways, but in a lot of ways, it's not good. And I, I like that these movies, like, you, you don't often see that reflect that that basic human reality reflected in movies. Uh, I have a little movie called On Golden Pond about the horrors of aging for you, Will. <laughs> and in Synecdoche, New York, it's all about, you know, Philip Seymour Hoffman, time just flowing away from him in many funny ways. Charlie Kaufman, for people who haven't seen the movie, he constructs the film as that, like, within one scene, there's, like, multiple date signifiers just to let you know that, like, months are going by, even though it seems like it's just one moment that's happening linearly. And, you know, I found Synecdoche, New York, this time around, like, pretty devastating, like, pretty emotionally difficult. Uh, but, I found it so funny. But but that's the thing. It is so funny. Like, that scene where he's reunited with his daughter on her deathbed. Yes. Uh, <laughs> there's an amazing joke where Philip Seymour Hoffman reads an article that his daughter has gotten a full body tattoo and he completely starts freaking out and he starts uh, yelling at Michelle Williams, Oh my God, my daughter got a full body tattoo. And Michelle Williams is like, oh, what are you talking about? Everybody has one. And she lifts up her shirt to show a giant tiger. <laughs> and it cuts to Philip Seymour Hoffman being like, I, I, I don't remember that, but okay. <laughs> yeah. You know, Kaufman is all about Kafka-esque, like the world around you doesn't make sense, but it feels like everybody else thinks it makes sense. But, you know, the person at the center is like, I'm lost. But I think that what makes it good is that the person at the center, the Charlie Kaufman surrogate, is also a piece of shit. Like, he's not like an innocent in all of this going, oh, woe is me. The world is terrible. His inability to act or acting selfish is what leads to the kind of tragic finales that you get in all of his scripts and movies. And, you know, I hadn't really thought about that, but you're right. Like, so many of his characters are creative people who... Uh, aspire to the level of genius, but we see uh, not only no evidence of it, but but the work they produce is like laughable. Like the the John Cusack character in Being John Malkovich with his with his pretentious puppetry. <laughs> I mean that puppetry very good, but oh man, is it pretentious? <laughs> I I think a good um, movie to discuss though is the new one that just came out, uh, the Netflix film. I'm thinking of ending things because it is a perfect distillation of everything Charlie Kaufman has tackled up to this point, but approaching it again from almost a critical angle. So we're going to spoil the movie, I think, because if we're going to talk about it. So if you yeah. haven't seen it, uh, I don't know, skip like five minutes and then, you know, get back to us when we're like letters. So what I loved about this movie is that you watch a trailer, you're like, oh, it's weird. It's like a time travel thing or, you know, something odd involving reality changing. I mean, about an hour in, I'm like, oh, okay, this is an identity situation. This is a story being written, and these characters are um, in this story that continually changes. And what I loved about it is, this is based on a novel that, from reviews I've read, is very straightforward. It basically ends with the twist like, oh my god, these characters aren't real! 
Shocker! While instead in Charlie Kaufman adaptation, it's about the fictional character realizing that she can move beyond the slame author, that she does not need to be defined by the things that he likes and almost trying to escape the kind of um, close reality that a loser man who can only kind of regurgitate his influences into a narrative. I mean, there's a lot in there about how ideas and influences shape our reality and, and even and even create the reality that we live in. And and I like that the particular cultural reference points that the movie uses, like, uh, so, so the plot, such as it is, is about uh, a woman and her uh, newish boyfriend and they go to his parents home in the country and like there's a there's a part where you see his childhood bedroom and uh, like on his bookshelf it's like david foster wallace pauline kale you know Uh, a lot of stuff in there that's very kind of like you know the the kind of stuff that i would have been like really into when i was discovering charlie coffin movies uh yeah that's right i love there's a moment where one of the characters just turns into pauline kale and rants about John Cassavetes. Mm. Ah, chef's kiss. Yeah. I mean, you know, this movie, which I found like, I, I also found this movie like very devastating um, for, for reasons that I'm not really sure I can articulate because it's, it's, it's so dense and it, it's quite difficult. And I, I'm not quite sure how to, how to talk about it in a way that's like not incredibly shallow and stupid, except to say that I was, I was very moved by like the, the ways that these characters interact with, you know, the, these pseudo characters interact with each other. Nobody is quite connecting. Nobody like, like everybody's conversation is just a little bit off. They're laughing at the wrong parts. Um, they're, they're, they're pausing and the parents like, time is constantly sandpapering away all of their good qualities the movie is so funny too like the reactions that they're so real while being almost too piercing in the reality and the way that the movie constantly rewrites itself as well to like you know the person writing the story is trying to find other more positive ways to go but it's almost like his uncomfortable reality is kind of imposing itself on the film until it only has one last place to go, which is pure uh, fatalism. And I think that what I really enjoyed is that because this was a movie adaptation, he let the actual um, language of film infect by the end, even if it's in the most cliche ways where, oh, you know what? It's turning into a musical. There's animated segments and it ends with a recreation of the speech from a beautiful mind. <laughs> Which is so funny. So funny. That is so funny. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I can understand people thinking that like, it is pretentious that he never comes out and says what's going on. Like you could be confused being like, I don't know what's going on. If you're not trying to find that twist in your mind, the book like comes out and says, Oh, this was all a fabrication. You know, there's like an epilogue where two characters are talking about what happened. But even so, I think the movie like works very strongly, just on, like almost as music. Like it works very strongly on an emotional level. And by the end, when it is essentially a big joke, only to land in like a place where it doesn't come out and say like, Oh, you know, these characters are dead now, but that's what it's saying that there's, only so far you can take a life built out of references to other things. I'm interested in uh, Kaufman's future because I know that in interviews he said that many of his movies have lost money. Anomalisa lost money. You know, he's always said that he approaches every movie as if it may be the last, which is 
hard to think, but, um, you know, who knows? I'm curious if he could be a being that exists only in the streaming models that, like, uh, Amazon and Netflix bat uh, him between each other. <laughs> you know, make a movie there, make a movie here. I'm thinking of ending things. Does not seem like an expensive movie to me. It mostly takes place in a car and a house. And, you know, it seems to be a movie that has sparked a certain amount of discourse too like pe- people are talking about this movie in the sort of way that they would have talked about like last year at marion bad in the 60s and he is st- still trying to do that big budget hollywood thing i mean the film that he wrote like the first draft of he's still credited on it doug lyman's chaos walking has been sitting on a shelf for like five years <laughs> when the studio puts it out who knows but you know it's nice that he can still get in there and write some scripts for big projects while Hopefully he can just go off to the side and do his own little things. As long as I guess they're not synecdoche New York size. Wasn't he a ghostwriter on Kung Fu Panda, like one of the sequels to that? Are you thinking of um, Noah Baumbach? Noah Baumbach was a ghostwriter on Madagascar. Oh, he was not a ghostwriter. He's credited on Madagascar 3. Oh, and wow. I think he did a draft and he was supposed to direct uh, Mr. Popper's Penguins as well. Well, you know, divorce is expensive, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. So, you know... You're right. I'm excited to see where Charlie Kaufman goes. I mean, he's a novelist now, and the novel is all about a pathetic film critic who thinks he's great, but is really a giant loser. I wouldn't know anything about that. So, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters. As per usual, you can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And our first one is from Luke Maxwell, and he goes, Hey, Justin and Will, long time, first time. Love the show. You two have got me through many a dull commute. Many episodes ago, you were talking about Kevin Smith's recent career. Were we? (laughs) I feel like we're always like perpetually like he's never far from our minds. Is he? I feel like Kevin Smith for me and you is uh, a very off mic thing where it's like, (laughs) what's Kevin Smith up there these days? The thing that always comes to mind with Smith is his stint as a guest star in Degrassi, where he played himself and broke up Caitlin and Joey days before their wedding. I'm a fan of Degrassi and had stopped watching the show when this plotline happened. Still, it sticks with me. Smith says he's a big fan of the show, but not enough to get out of the way of a big romance plotline three series in the making. People had been waiting on this wedding since the end of School's Out. I know this doesn't have much to do with Smith's cinema, but I think it shows a sort of Canadian-centric opportunism that paves the way for yoga hosers. Well, Smith's on Degrassi. Now, I remember this was a big deal, and I think I speak for the both of us when I say we did not watch Degrassi. I haven't seen an entire episode of Degrassi. I realize I'm a bad Canadian for saying that. Um, what What I can say, though, is that this Kevin Smith episode was sold as a standalone DVD, and I saw it at Roger's video a lot. Oh my god, it haunted bargain bins for years. (laughs) And it had the title, Jay and Silent Bob Go to Degrassi, or something like that. You remember that? (laughs) I remember. I think I watched maybe the first episode he was on, and I was like, I can't make heads and tails of this. (laughs) Like, I had to have been watching the regular series, and I'm not going to start doing that, so no thank you. I think it does speak to something in the Canadian national character, though. We love being acknowledged by Americans, Oh my God, we are so pathetic when it comes to that. Do you remember how it felt like the six months? Yeah, The Simpsons. Yeah, I knew Canada you were say was it. <laughs> obsessed with The Simpsons coming to Canada, which they only did for 10 minutes. That Simpsons in Canada moment was an epochal moment in everybody's childhood up here. You, you just have to understand. I that. remember like all of Canada was tuned into that episode wondering. Wait, is this the Canadian one? (laughs) They play a repeat of some kind? (laughs) Kevin Smith, me and Will were literally talking two days ago about like, we promised we'd never talk about this again, but how can we get back to this subject some way? (laughs) 
<laughs> and I feel like we've talked about every single one of his movies in uh, in some length. Yes, yes. Uh, I don't think we ever had an episode on Yoga Hosers, which we did watch together. I think I yeah, I watched it with you, and I think I talked about Yoga Hosers on the Dearly Departed These Boys Are Good Boys podcast. So my <laughs> okay. my thoughts about it are out there in the world somewhere. But nobody should go looking at that. It's like the Ark of the Covenant. You want to open that podcast up because your face will melt. <laughs> so thanks for sending us that letter, Luke. And again, you can send us letters at Podcast at gmail.com. So it's a new month. So that means it's a new Gold Ninja video release. And this month, it's And God Said to Cain, a Klaus Kinski spaghetti western that also plays as kind of a gothic horror film. It's about Klaus Kinski getting out of jail and vowing revenge on the man who put them there, which involves him picking up a gun with some limited bullets and going to a town in the middle of the night as a tornado hits and Kinski basically killing everyone in that town. Directed by Antonio Margaretti, who did Can apocalypse and gets name checked in inglorious bastards i believe it's brad pitt says that his name is antonio margaretti in the final party sequence so big famous italian director great spaghetti western perfect for the kind of like scary season because it's like a gothic horror style western and of course because gold ninja video release packed special features commentary there's a featurette that i did on horror westerns me and will have a talk about klaus kinski and basically the films that he took um <laughs> to pay the bills none of the Werner herzog ones or anything like that and as a bonus film it's a spaghetti western with gothic undertones, uh, The Moment to Kill, which is very underrated and very fun. So you can pick that up at goldninjavideo.com. And we're running low, but there's still some Ninja Vortex uh, Blu-ray sets uh, available. The three-disc Godfrey Ho and Friends extravaganza that uh, me and everybody I know put together. So if you haven't picked that up yet, do it now, or it will disappear and you will always regret it. So this week on our Patreon episode, we're talking Larry Cohen. Why? Because me and Will got the new Vinegar Syndrome release of Perfect Strangers, and we love Larry Cohen. I could talk about Larry Cohen all day. We should do just a whole podcast series where we go through every one of his movies. Oh, yeah. Movie by movie. <laughs> it just and break then, down. And then we, then we go back and we do it again. And then we go back and do it again. Just That's forever. something that I feel like me and you, we never do, which is like when I listen to like movie podcasts, I'll pick one movie and they'll like dissect it scene by scene, <laughs> which is like, oh, man, feels so long. But I mean, if that's what the audiences want, I mean, we could do it in the Patreon form of some kind, because speaking of Patreon, I'm doing, I guess, a is it Pledge Drive? Is that what NPR does? Where it's like, or uh, and all those public access stations, the Max Fun Drive, where we're uh, asking people, we want to hit 300 Patreon subscribers. That's nothing. If you listen to this show and you've been listening to it for a while, you should become a Patreon subscriber. And what will we do if you do become a Patreon subscriber? Well... There's a bunch of options that we put on the on the Patreon page, and you get to vote. And what are the options? The first one is Ernest Fest, and it's me and Will will watch all of the five final Ernest films in a row over one day, and we'll do a little podcast about each of them, which we then edit together and put only for the 300 Patreon subscribers. It will then disappear from the internet. Actually, for all the choices, that's what we're going to do. We're going to record a podcast on them, and then... Put it on the internet for those 300 people and then nothing else. But what matters is we're talking about Ernest Goes to Africa, Ernest in the Army, Slam Dunk Ernest, Ernest Goes to School, uh, one of the other ones. I believe I've seen Ernest Goes to School. I don't think I've seen any of the other ones. Whoa. And you know what? 
it sounds like people are voting and that's not going to happen because we also have a Shrek marathon. Oh no, please vote for Ernest, please. We were, uh, where we watched four Shrek films and then the two Shrek specials, uh, Shrek the Halls and Scared Shrekless. Yeah. And finally, I put in like a wild card one because I was like, oh, we can't just have two. I mean, there was one that I suggested and Will vetoed, rightfully so, but I will not speak of that again. Oh, I'll tell them. It was going to be a Zack Snyder marathon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Will was like, I, I can't do it. <laughs> I'm like, when will I ever watch the Owls of Al Ghul or whatever it's called? <laughs> I would be happy to go to my grave without ever seeing the Owls of Gahul. <laughs> there you go. Will's a real fan. He knows the title. And finally, Finally, it's five uh, video game movies in the 90s, which last time I checked is the one that's leading the polls. That's fine. You know, Super Mario Brothers. I love that shit. But I think you can still go back and switch it to Ernest, which is what we would prefer. So, you know. And what's great about Ernest is we will still suffer watching those movies. Oh, yeah. But it's my kind of suffering, you know? Yeah, but we will come back greater men afterwards great just greater human beings so uh if you want to hear that episode you got to become a patreon subscriber we have to hit 300 subscribers patreon.com slash the important cinema club okay so what are we doing next week will uh we've done very little animation on this show uh we did tex avery i guess maybe one other but we're going into the world of not just animation but claymation we were talking about nick park the multi-academy award-winning director of all of the wallace and gromit films chicken run and creature comforts so we're gonna watch those which were never a part of my childhood but come on it's claymation it's great i love it so that's what we're gonna be talking about next week and until then my name is Jonathan glue i'm will Sloan. thanks for listening hello justin here interrupting briefly to thank some of our new patreon subscribers who include taydrem quinn dobbins y2k podcast ben borchard and samuel smith thank you very much for becoming patreon subscribers and if you would like your name read on this podcast make sure to subscribe before we hit 300 and you can do so by going to patreon.com slash the important cinema club and if you need more movie podcasts i'm on two almost every week there's the bay street video podcast where me and mark hansen go through all the new blu-rays and dvds that are released every week and also the no such thing as a bad movie podcast where me april litmanski and colin cunningham talk through an entire bad movie i'm making air quotes here and try to focus on the positive you can find no such thing as a bad movie and the bay street video podcast wherever you get your podcast and now we return you to your regular scheduled programming justin and i hung out this week you know we we we, we saw each other in person, which, you know, ever since the start of the pandemic, I I basically lost all my friends. I basically don't see <laughs> anyone anymore. We had a movie night in your backyard where we watched a martial arts film. <laughs> That's true. Basically, all I have is Justin. And I have Luke, too. Basically, just just people that I host podcasts with. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's all you need, man. Uh, that's, that's all I have left because I have professional obligations with these people. Yes. Otherwise, you would probably be in a Charlie Kaufman-like existence where you speak to no one. Uh, you know what I miss, Justin? I miss having acquaintances. Uh, did you ever used to have acquaintances? I feel like I've lost all those thanks to the pandemic. No, you know what? This is a funny thing. I was never someone who had acquaintances. I usually have friends that I talk with regularly, but other than that, not really. It's fine. You don't need acquaintances. It's okay. But I think it's just that you like going out and I don't like going out, which is the big difference. That, you know what? That's it. We solved it. But anyway, we, we both went out together this week. We went to uh sunnyside beach in toronto it wasn't actually it was advertised as sunnyside beach but it was just a little bit to the east <laughs> yeah in other words me and will wandered for an hour looking for it 
<laughs> went in the wrong direction. Ridiculous. I did spot it, and it was a bunch of teenagers, and I went, uh-oh, this doesn't seem right. But no, that was right. That's where I should have been. Uh, but we got there on time, fortunately, and we saw a screening of the... 1989 Italian horror film Killer Crocodile. Who is this directed by? Not one of the big guys, right? No, I don't know. I just know that the guy who worked on a lot of late period uh, Lucio Fulci films did the big crocodile in the movie. Okay. Well, anyway, it's set in, I guess, New Orleans, and it's a Jaws ripoff, basically. You know, it has that slightly distant Italian pretending to be an American film quality. But the big difference between this movie and Jaws is that like Killer Crocodile goes, we paid for this giant crocodile and we're going to show this crocodile at every possible moment because from the get-go you see it and anytime it shows up, you see it from multiple angles. This giant leaden thing that can barely move and it's beautiful. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's a very impressive special effect for an Italian horror film from 1989, which means it's not quite as good as the shark from Jaws that they intentionally hid because it looked fake. Yeah, I mean, I would take the giant crocodile over the shark from Jaws, which can't really do that that much except go up. While this crocodile can kind of like skim the water a little bit. <laughs> it opens and closes its mouth. At one point, there's a quick shot of a puppet crocodile in what looks like a little pool opening its <laughs> mouth. <laughs> I heard you laughing really hard during that part. Yeah. Killer Crocodile, a, a lot of it's boring, but the parts of it that are good are really good. So I, I recommend it. You know, at this point in time where it feels like every Italian exploitation movie has been released like, pfft, I don't know, a dozen times. Stuff like Killer Crocodile is finally coming to light. The late 80s stuff that is not as good as the best, but it still has its highs, I guess. It has its highs. And like the late 80s stuff... You don't see the kind of poetry that you see in The Best of Argento or Fulci, but you do see a shamelessness. Yeah, that's this right. This movie has a scene where the Robert Shaw character basically rides... Joe! Joe, yeah. He rides on the back of a crocodile and is stabbing it. And then shortly after that, there's a scene where like, what do they do? They throw the propeller blade into the crocodile. The crocodile's mouth, which then explodes, <laughs> splattering everybody with blood. And this description doesn't do it justice. Oh, no. When it happens, it's like the audience was on their feet at this screening, which was on the beach. So it was all outdoors, <laughs> just cheering and hollering. Oh, good stuff. Yeah, I uh, I definitely enjoyed and, it. And, you know, we say this as if it's like a lost film. No, uh, Severin uh, put it out a few months ago on Blu-ray, Killer Crocodile 1 and 2. So you can pick it up. A uh, perfect remastered widescreen because everything is available now. I think this may be the last one, actually. I think every other Italian horror movie has been found. Can you name one that hasn't? It's like one that only exists in like a crappy version? Yeah. Not off the top of my head. And God said to Cain. Yeah, that's right. Coming soon to Gold Ninja Video. Not remastered. 